I was listening to the radio the other night as I was driving, and uh, they were talking about a new movie that's just come out called X. I guess it's called X or Malcolm X. It's the supposed recounting of the story of Malcolm X, a classic illustration of revisionist history as pulled off by Spike Lee, probably not very closely related to truth. One of the commentators asked if somebody wanted to make a movie to express some feelings about the plight of black people in our culture, why wouldn't they make a movie about Martin Luther King? And one of the other people responding to that basically said, because this is not a generation that is interested in any kind of passive approach to anything. This is a generation that has been fed a steady diet of violence, and this is not a generation that's going to buy a passive approach. And so the theory of this one guy was that Malcolm X fits the mood of the mob today, violence, anger, hostility, vengeance. And that really did point up to me a particular issue that faces our society that needs to be addressed from a biblical viewpoint. I, I'm not sure I can fully address it in the limited time I have today. But it introduces to us the concept of forgiveness. Forgiveness is almost a curse word today. We're not supposed to forgive. We're not supposed to ask for forgiveness. We're all about vengeance. We're all about retribution. We're all about getting back from anybody who has wronged us exactly what we deserve. We're all about finding our pound of flesh. One of the major contributors, I believe, to the destruction of American character and the destruction of our nation as we know it is our utter disregard for forgiveness. No matter what someone has done to you, certainly as a Christian, you are mandated to be forgiving. And yet in our society, people are filled with bitterness, they're filled with anger, they're filled with hatred, they're filled with vengeance, retaliation is sought, and those kinds of attitudes are honored. Those kinds of attitudes are basically approved and assumed to be right and good and noble attitudes. I suppose we could go back to uh, a few years ago when we started making heroes out of uh, Dirty Harry, who blew people away with the very well-known phrase, go ahead, make my day. Or maybe your first experience with retaliation and vengeance was somebody like Rambo, who was a one-man wrecking crew leaving bloodied bodies from one end of the world to the next. Or maybe you've been exposed to what recently has been called the Terminator, the guy who goes around blowing people up. It's a time of vengeance in our culture. It's a time of retaliation, and nothing could be more antithetical to Christianity than that. Just from the lawsuit standpoint, in America, we'll have 250,000 lawsuits this year, as 250,000 people, plus all the other co-belligerents in the case, adding up to millions of people, try to get their pound of flesh. We have 70% of the world's lawyers in America, and there are more people in law school now in this country than all other graduate programs combined. So we're going to be involved in getting our pound of flesh out of everybody we can get it out of. And even the people helpers, even the psychologists and the counselors and the therapists and the psychiatrists say it's not healthy to forgive. Uh, there's a popular book that I read called Toxic Parents written by a woman named Susan Forward, and she presents what I think is a prevailing attitude toward forgiveness. She has a chapter in this book called, You Don't Have to Forgive. 
Basically, she says, you should place the blame for your present problems on your parents. They poisoned you. You, you had toxic parents. In fact, the new cry is, I am a victim. I just read a book called A Nation of Victims. The subtitle is The Death of American Character. Everybody is a victim. Everybody is a victim. Somebody is doing everybody in, and you need to get your retaliation. One guy sued the city of Baltimore because he didn't get a contract to, to do some city building project. He was a, a contractor. The interesting note about him was he weighed 620 pounds. He weighed 620 pounds. They, he bid on a certain job in Baltimore. They turned him down. They turned him down because uh, he didn't visit the job site. He said, I can't visit the job site. I fall through the stairs. So he wouldn't come. Then when he didn't get the job, he sued the city of Baltimore for discrimination against a minority. He belongs to a minority who weigh in excess of 600 pounds. He said it wasn't fair. Then I read about the guy from uh, the guy who went to McDonald's and weighed 340 pounds, and he sued McDonald's because there wasn't a stool in there that could contain his gluteus maximus, and so he sued McDonald's for not accommodating his particular minority. Um, amazing. Then there was the lady who was a clairvoyant who could read the future. She had a car accident that jerked her neck back and she lost her ability to read the future. So she won a lawsuit for something like three million dollars. And on and on it goes. There was a guy working for the FBI, stole two thousand dollars from the FBI, lost it gambling. They found out about it. They fired him. He went to court. The court reinstated him, said it wasn't his fault. He had a gambling addiction. Now he's back working for the FBI. That's nice to know, isn't it? And on and on it goes. Nobody is responsible for anything. Everybody is a victim. Somebody did it to them. And you've got to get your pound of flesh out of whoever did it to you, even if it means you cut yourself off from your parents and your friends. And you spend your whole life suing everybody in sight. Guilt for anything is pushed on to somebody else, and all that's left is vengeance, and you keep exercising your options in vengeance until they exhaust themselves. So you have a society, basically, that doesn't know anything about forgiveness. And I want you to understand how absolutely contrary this is to what the Bible teaches. Let me just give you some basic points, still kind of in an introductory way, before we look at the Scripture. Unforgiveness imprisons you in your past. Unforgiveness imprisons people in their past. I can think back when we were sued because a young man in our church killed himself. That lawsuit went on for 10 years. And as long as that lawsuit went on, the angry father who sued us, who really was the reason his son killed himself because of what the father had done to him and he wanted to punish his father. And so he took his own life in a, in a way he was saying to his father, let's see you get over that. You made me kill myself. Live with that the rest of your life. But the father wanted to blame us, and as long as that 10-year period of court cases kept that issue alive, the father never got over the past grief. It faced him every day, every waking moment of his life. As long as you fail to forgive an offense, as long as you don't deal with giving up something and letting it go by, you shackle yourself to the past, your pain is kept alive, you keep picking at the same open sore, you keep it from healing and you sentence yourself to feeling as bad in the future as you do in the present as you have in the past. No relief is in sight, you choose frankly to love hate and to live with loving hate. 
Unforgiveness, secondly, produces bitterness. It not only chains you to the past, but it produces bitterness. It's an infection that brings a certain cancer to the heart. It, it has a certain malignancy that distorts how you view life. It makes you morbid and unhappy and unfulfilled. It produces anger that rages out of control at the least little thing that may not even be related to the issue at hand. It leads to unchecked emotions. It allows you to entertain desperate thoughts of revenge. Every conversation becomes another opportunity to slander the person that you won't forgive, to defame and even to lie. But on the other hand, forgiveness frees you from the past and forgiveness frees you from bitterness. It completely sets you free. In the scripture, there are at least 75 word pictures of forgiveness. Here are some of them. And I'm just giving you a paraphrase. To forgive is to turn the key, to open the cell door and let the prisoner walk out. To forgive is to write in large letters across a debt, nothing owed. To forgive is to pound the gavel in a courtroom and declare not guilty. These are biblical pictures. To forgive is to shoot an arrow so high and so far it can never be found again. To forgive is to take out the garbage and dispose of it, leaving the house clean and fresh. To forgive is to loose the anchor and set the ship free to sail. To forgive is to grant a full pardon to a condemned and sentenced criminal. To forgive is to loosen a stranglehold on a wrestling opponent. To forgive is to sandblast a wall of graffiti, leaving it looking brand new. To forgive is to smash a clay pot into a thousand pieces so it can never be put back together again. By all of these and many other metaphors, the Bible says to us, forgiveness is a marvelous virtue. Forgiveness is liberating and loving. It makes sense to forgive. It is healthy. It is wholesome. It is sensible. It relieves tension, pressure, brings peace, and solicits love. It is noble. One person has analyzed forgiveness this way. Here's a quote. Only the brave know how to forgive. It is the most refined and generous element of human virtue. Cowards have done good deeds and performed kind acts. Cowards have even fought and conquered. But a coward never forgives. It is not in his nature or his heart. The power to forgive flows only from a strength and greatness of soul, conscious of its own humility and security, and able to rise above all the little temptations of resenting every fruitless attempt to steal its happiness. End quote. It's true. Only the brave forgive. Only the humble forgive. But going beyond the philosophizing about it, I want us to see what the Bible says about forgiveness. And I'm going to give you several points. We'll see how much time we have. We won't cover them all. Here are some biblical principles related to forgiveness, okay? A little laundry list so you can write them down as we go. Number one, forgiveness is the most godlike act a person can do. Forgiveness is the most godlike act a person can do. Now, I know that that's a very, a very large statement. Anytime you, you say most or always, you're, you're pulling something out of the crowd, as it were, and setting it apart. And I mean that. Forgiveness is the most godlike act a person can do. No act is more divine than forgiveness. Never are we more like God than when we forgive. Forgiveness is that verbally declared promise 
The statement that is undeserved that says there is no anger, there is no hatred, there is no desire for vengeance, there will be no retaliation because you have no guilt, you bear no blame, I hold nothing against you. No matter what you've done. If you go into the Old Testament, you find that this is what marks the nature of God. He forgives. He says, I hold no anger, no hatred, no desire for vengeance, no retaliation. I pass over your guilt and your blame. That's his character. Listen to Exodus 34, verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, that is Moses, and the Lord proclaimed, and here the Lord describes himself, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. God says, you want to know what I'm like? I am compassionate, I am gracious, I am slow to anger, I abound in loving kindness and truth, and I forgive your sins. That's who I am. That's God's own assessment of who He is. The first statements are attributes. The act is forgiveness that is the consequence of those attributes. If you remember Psalm 32, the psalm of contrition, as David confessed the sin of adultery, he says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And you can go through a number of passages in the Old Testament to see the character of God. When Jesus wanted to talk about God, when he wanted to define the character of God, the most singularly unique story he ever told about the character of God is the story as we know it of the prodigal son. And the story of the prodigal son is a story about forgiveness. Even though you rejected your father, even though you turned your back on his provision, even though you wanted nothing to do with his house, nothing to do with him personally, you had no love for him, even though you took what was yours and you squandered it and you lived in filth and you conducted yourself, as the Bible says, in riotous living and immorality, even though you rejected and went away, when you came back, God forgave you. Nothing is more characteristic of God in His relation to us than forgiveness. Than forgiveness. And so I say forgiveness is the most godlike act that we can do. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, He looked out over the crowd that had put Him there, and He said, Father, what? Forgive them. They don't know what they do. When Stephen was beneath the bloody stones losing his life, as recorded in Acts, it says that he prayed to God and said, Lay not this sin to their charge. That is forgiveness. You can't be more like God as a human being than when you forgive, as Christ did, as Stephen did. Sir Thomas More, who was the Lord Chancellor of England, after having been tried at Westminster and condemned to death with no just cause, he said this to his judges, and I quote Thomas More, As St. Paul held the clothes of those who stoned Stephen to death, and as they are both now saints in heaven, that is, Paul and Stephen, 
and shall continue their friends forever. So I verily trust shall therefore most heartily pray that though your lordships have now here on earth been judges to my condemnation, we may nevertheless hereafter cheerfully meet in heaven in everlasting salvation. End quote. As they were about to take his life, he prayed that someday they would join him in heaven. That is godlike. For God has been so overtly and so blatantly and so unjustly offended and blasphemed and dishonored, yet he lovingly forgives the very people who do that to him. Certainly that is Paul's salient point. If you take your Bible and look at Ephesians 4.32, this is where Paul says that in so many terms. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's the pattern. Therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, you know there are no chapter divisions in the original text. Therefore, he says, be imitators of God. You're to imitate God in being a forgiver. Just as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you, you're to forgive others. By the way, the same thing is stated also in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13. Forgiving each other, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you do. And again I say, you're never more like God than when you forgive. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he is mandating for believers. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus essentially laid down the principle. He said, love your enemies... And pray for those who persecute you. That involves forgiveness. In order that you may be sons of your father. You are never more like your father as a son. You are never more an imitator of God than when you forgive. Than when you forgive. By the way, Paul wrote Ephesians. And he wrote Colossians. From a jail where he was unjustly mercilessly and hatefully imprisoned. So he was practicing the very virtue he was teaching. Second principle. The first one is you're never more like God than when you forgive. The second principle is it is not murder only which is forbidden by the sixth commandment. It is not murder only that is forbidden by the sixth commandment. You say, what do you mean by that? The sixth commandment says thou shalt not murder. But in the very saying of that, you don't have all that needs to be understood. Because in the New Testament, our Lord expands that. Matthew 5, again, in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the words of Jesus, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. You know that. But verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. He says, you have heard that you're not to commit murder. That is correct. But Jesus said there's something behind that that equally concerns God, and that's your anger. 
And if you say to someone, Raka, or if you say to someone, you fool, you are guilty enough to go to hell. That's his point. The rabbis used to say, don't murder. And if you didn't murder, they said, well, you kept the law. Jesus said, no, there was more in the sixth commandment than the act of murder. There was the whole issue of hatred. Jesus says, if you're angry, you're as good as a murderer. First John 3:15. everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So God was talking not only about the actual killing, but the attitude. You say, what does it mean, Raka? If you say to your brother, Raka, I don't know what it means. It's an old four-letter word. I know that. Like some of the four-letter words we have today, it's a word about slander. It was some kind of a common ancient epithet that has no modern equivalent, and so they never translated it. They just transliterated the letters over. It's a term of abuse, a term of derision. It's a term of arrogant contempt and hate. Usually those kinds of terms have a hard consonant in them. I don't, you don't need to think about that too long, but they do. And raka has that sort of sound. Whatever it meant to them, it was a term of abuse. He says, if you say that to someone, betraying the hatred of your heart, the unwillingness to forgive, or if you say to someone, you fool, you stupid one, that's a curse, very serious enough, serious enough to send you to hell. So the Bible is telling us then that the sixth commandment does not just speak about murder. Our Lord says it speaks about hatred, a lack of forgiveness, and any kind of hostility. In fact, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. There's a third principle. And this, I think, is very important. Whoever has offended you has offended God more. Whoever has offended you has offended God more. Now follow this thought. If God is willing to forgive, why won't you? That's the point. If God, who is the most holy and therefore the most offended, has forgiven someone, then who are you not to forgive? Are you greater than God? Is the offense against you more significant than the offense against God? Somebody slanders me. They slander me unjustly. They slander me viciously. Some Christian friend, supposed friend, some other believer, some other pastor, some other Christian leader, or some person. They slander me. They slander me in some kind of a way to discredit me, to discredit my ministry, to harm me, to wound me, as they often did to the Apostle Paul. If they're a believer, God has already forgiven that, right? And if they are an unbeliever, but they come to the Lord and ask forgiveness in the name of Christ and embrace Him, He'll forgive that. If God is willing and has forgiven all believers all their iniquities and is willing even to forgive the unbeliever his iniquity, then who am I not to forgive? I am less holy than God. I am not a higher moral standard. If God can forgive who is the greater, can I forgive who am the lesser? In Psalm 51, the psalmist said, Against thee, the only, have I sinned. David knew he sinned against Bathsheba when he wrote that. 
by committing adultery with her and even impregnating her, causing her to bear a child that the Lord later allowed to die. God, David knew that he not only sinned against Bathsheba, but he'd sinned against his own spouse. He'd sinned against her husband, whom he had murdered for all purposes. He had sinned against his nation, but all he could see was that he had sinned against God. And he had the right perspective. All sin is most offensive at the highest level, and that is God. And if sin can be forgiven at that level, it must be forgiven at a lower level. Shall we who in some way are incidental to the sin not be willing to forgive when God who is not incidental to the sin but is most offended is willing to forgive? Let me give you a fourth principle in dealing with forgiveness. It is only reasonable that those forgiven the greater sins should forgive the lesser ones that those forgiven the greater sins should forgive the lesser ones. See, what do you mean by that? What I mean is this. You have, you have been forgiven much more by God than you will ever asked, be asked to forgive by men. Is that not true? You have already been forgiven much more by God than you will ever ask to be forgiven by men. That is to say... God knows every wickedness in your life from the beginning to the end. He knows every wicked deed. He knows every wicked word. He knows every wicked thought. He knows every single offense you have ever committed. And all of it is known to Him at all times. And He forgives it all. You have amassed, and so have I, an accumulated indebtedness of sin that is far beyond any human comprehension. So the worst that we know about each other doesn't even touch the reality of what God knows about us, right? And if God then will forgive the greater sins, and He knows the true list, cannot we forgive the little list that we know about? This is illustrated for us in an very, very instructive parable of Matthew 18. Look at it for a moment. In Matthew 18, I won't take the time to go through all of it, but it starts down in verse 22. Jesus says you're to forgive 70 times 7, which means all the time. And then he tells a story that illustrates it. You remember the story? It's, it's the kingdom of heaven compared to a king who wants to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, these slaves were like governors. They were what we could call, I guess, in ancient times, governors or satraps, people who were over a certain area. The king had these governors over certain areas, like a president has governors maybe over states. Only they're all answerable to the king. So they come in and they're to give an account of what? Of the collection of taxes and the management of the money that they had for their area. One of them comes in, and as these accounts are settled, he finds in verse 24, the guy owes him 10,000 talents. That's a massive debt. One commentator said that would be equivalent to the entire income by taxation of all of Galilee. Huge. No one individual would have that kind of money. What is interesting is he had collected all of this. This 10,000 talents of gold, most likely, would make it a huge, massive sum in the millions. This guy had collected it all. But he didn't have it to give the king, which means that he had spent it on himself, he had wasted it, and he has absolutely nothing with which to pay. 
Though to make a long story short, he pleads, falls down, verse 26. We'll skip a lot of the details here. Verse 27 says, the, the Lord of that slave or the king felt compassion, released him, forgave him the debt. That's God. That pictures God forgiving the sinner an unpayable debt. The sinner had what the Puritans used to call gospel privilege. He lived under the general grace of God, the common grace of God. And he had opportunity, he had gospel privilege to believe. But he wasted it and embezzled that opportunity. But when he came pleading for mercy because of his accumulated debt of sin, he was forgiven. That's God. He forgives the sinner. The rest of the story is fascinating. The slave went out in verse 28, found some guy who owed him a hundred denarii. That's about three months' wages. And he took him by the neck and began to choke him and asked for him to pay back what he owed. And he said he couldn't pay, so he threw him in prison till he could earn everything he paid he needed to pay. Now, in prison, you earned a pittance. It would take you maybe 15 years to earn back what you could earn outside of prison in three months. You say, how could a guy be so merciless? Well, that's the whole point. When you have been forgiven such a massive debt by God, can you not forgive a lesser debt from someone else? That's the whole point. God has mercifully forgiven you what you could never pay. Can't you forgive someone else a small debt? What insensitive gratitude. In fact, it's so shocking, the parable is so shocking, that the fellow slaves in verse 31 can't even believe what they're seeing, and they report back to the king what this guy who has been forgiven an unpayable debt has done to one who owed him a little bit. The king takes him and beats on him in verse 34, sends some torturers out to exact the proper pain from him. The point is very simple. You have been forgiven much, you must forgive little. Let me give you a fifth principle. Fifth one. And it, it ties in here with these things. Failure to forgive results in chastening. Failure to forgive results in chastening. Down in verse 32, the king summons the guy, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you asked. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow slave even as I had mercy on you? Shouldn't you have forgiven as you have been forgiven according to Ephesians 4.32? And the Lord there, the king, was moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers, literally in the Greek, the tormentors, until he should repay all that was owed him. Serious chastening from the Lord, until he rendered all that he owed. And what did he owe? He owed forgiveness. And the Lord was going to beat on him until he gave that forgiveness to that slave. You say, what does the torturers mean? What does the tormentors mean? Difficulty? Stress? Hardship? Illness? James 2.13 says, Judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. The unforgiving brother is going to be pounded on by God himself until he forgives. Matthew 5.7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So the fifth principle is that the one who does not forgive will be chastened. You wonder why things aren't the way they ought to be in your life? Look at your life. Are you forgiving? Are you holding a grudge? And that leads us to that sixth point. The one who doesn't forgive won't be forgiven. This is a powerful point. It ties exactly in with that chastening principle in that parable. Matthew chapter 6. 
again, back to the Sermon on the Mount where the Lord did so much of this teaching. Just two verses, verses 14 and 15 in Matthew 6. If you forgive men for their transgression, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That doesn't mean you're going to go to hell. Because in the general sense, in the broad sense, in the sense of eternal forgiveness in your justification, all your sin is forgiven. That settles the issue of your future well-being. But in the sense of temporal forgiveness related to your sanctification, you need to confess your sins and to forgive because that settles the issue of your present blessing. I hope you got that because it's an important distinction. When you became a Christian, your eternal forgiveness was taken care of in your justification that takes care of your future well-being. But now, if you don't forgive... If you don't offer temporal forgiveness, you're not going to get temporal forgiveness from God, and it will retard your sanctification, and that has to do with your present blessing. God has forgiven all your sins so that you're headed for heaven in the justification sense, but if you don't forgive, God holds that sin against you in the sanctification sense, and you will forfeit joy and blessing. Through the years as a pastor, I've seen this. I have looked at people. I've seen them in their families and their personal lives. And they wonder why things are going wrong. They, they come to church and maybe even reading their Bible. They think they're doing what they ought to do. And yet their life is insipid. And their life is dry. And their life is dull. And they lack joy. And they lack power. And they lack meaningful service to Christ. Their marriage may be a mess. Their family life isn't what it ought to be. They don't understand it, and yet they hold in their heart deep bitterness and will not forgive somebody for something that they have done. And as a result, they're just being hammered by the tormentors and chastened, and God will not forgive that until they release themselves from the bondage of that iniquity and forgive someone. It can even get to the point where the Lord may take a life. Now, what have we said? We have said we are to forgive because never are you more like God than when you forgive. You are to forgive because it is forbidden not to forgive in the commandment of Exodus 20. You are to forgive because the most holy God forgives and shouldn't the least holy be willing to forgive. You are to forgive because the greater sins against God have been forgiven in His grace. Can't the lesser sins be forgiven by us? You are to forgive... Because otherwise you will be chastened, you are to forgive, because if you don't forgive, God will not forgive you. Now let me close with just a couple to keep in mind. Number seven, this is brief. The absence of forgiveness makes you unfit to worship. It makes you unfit to worship. You stood up and sang this morning songs of worship. If you're carrying a grudge against somebody in your heart, if there's some relationship in your life that isn't right, you had no right to worship. In Matthew 5:23, Jesus said, if you are presenting your offering, you're coming to the Lord to make your offering, an offering of praise or whatever, and you remember something isn't right between you and someone else, Drop your offering, go your way, get reconciled to your brother, then come. Don't try to worship God if there's hostility 
in your heart toward someone else or hostility in their heart toward you that you haven't done everything possible to reconcile. Reconciliation precedes worship. So the absence of forgiveness renders us unfit to worship. Then number eight, not to forgive is to usurp the authority of God. Not to forgive is to usurp the authority of God. In Romans 12, God says this, and it's quoting Deuteronomy, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You forgive your enemy. If he's hungry, what? Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him to drink. You leave vengeance to me. I'll take care of that. Not you. And one last thought that you can just kind of follow in your minds. The injuries and the offenses that come into your life, and they'll come. People will be cruel and unkind, merciless. They may steal from you. They may, they may um, rob you of your reputation in the, in the minds of some people. They may slander you. They may falsely accuse you. They may take something that really belongs to you. They may undercut you in relationships. There are a myriad of ways that they can offend you. Just remember this, will you? Every time someone offends you, every time someone sins against you, every time someone violates you, that is an opportunity for spiritual growth if you respond properly. Why? Because the injuries against you are the very trials that can affect your spiritual growth. All the difficulties in life, all the criticisms, all the injustices, all the offenses, persecutions, and mistreatments are the things that God uses to make you strong. Peter says, after you have suffered a while, the Lord make you perfect. Paul the Apostle says, I'm content with persecution, I'm content with distress, I'm content with slander, I'm content with all of that, because when I am weak, then I am strong. If you don't forgive, then your trial becomes a temptation and a sin. If you forgive, your trial becomes an opportunity for growing strong. We live in a world, as I said at the very beginning, that doesn't want to forgive, doesn't know how to forgive and sadly doesn't believe forgiveness is necessary or even right. And I'll tell you right now, this will devastate people. An inability to forgive will destroy people from the inside out. It'll destroy our whole culture. And we can't catch that disease. In the midst of this kind of society, we need to be known as those who humble ourselves and forgive in every situation based upon these principles. Father, thank you for, again, making such a clear word available to us in the Scripture so that we know how to respond to the injustices of life. Capping it all off, we remember our Lord Jesus, of whom Peter said when he was reviled, he reviled not. When he was persecuted, he never retaliated. The one who never deserved any slander because he never offended. The one who never deserved any offense was most offended and most slandered and most mistreated and killed. Even our Lord Jesus Christ. 
But on the cross, he forgave. And as Peter said, he committed his soul to the Creator who was faithful. May we be like Christ, forgiving and committing the consequence of offenses against us to the faithful Creator who cares about us. Help us to so live, Lord, that the world sees us as completely unique, forgiving in the midst of an unforgiving world. We thank you for that privilege of thus becoming visibly the sons of God, the God who forgives. We pray in the name of Christ who made all forgiveness possible. Amen.